Good evening, church. It's good to be with you again. It's been a while. It's good to be back. I was teasing somebody, uh, the worship team, before we came up here, that it's been such a long time since I've preached. I was wondering, is it like riding a bike? And so I was, had the privilege to preach at a sister church in town this morning that's in transition, and it was a good time with God's people. And so it's good to be back here with God's people at Living Hope, Brian. And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 20. And we'll be looking at verses 17 through 38. But before we go any further, I want to say just a couple of things uh, just related to my sabbatical, my time away. Uh, First, I want to say thank you, church, for trusting God and trusting me with this time. It was a blessing to me and to my family. I praise God for a church who loves a pastor this way, How do you, and that's what it is. This is uh, a gift that was given to me, and I'm very grateful for it. Uh, secondly, I just want to, again, say publicly thank you to Charles and to Matt and to Bill and to Alan for standing up here week after week faithfully preaching God's word. Church, we are blessed that the word of God continues to go out faithfully and it doesn't hinge on any one person. And we'll see that again tonight in our text. And I'm just so grateful for the things that God reminded me while I was away and being able to visit with other brother pastors here in this community as well as attend other church services and just be encouraged by the word of the Lord. And it was certainly a time of personal rest, a time of deep personal reflection, and to be honest with you, also a time of personal repentance. And one area I'll just briefly speak to, because it somewhat relates to our text here, is in the matter an idea of identity, where we find our identity as Christians. And as a pastor, uh, we know from the scripture to be called to the ministry and to serve in this capacity and in this role, Paul tells Timothy that it is worthy of honor. In fact, a double honor. But as admirable and honorable as this role is, for, for me and for any other pastor, our identity does not come from this calling. It's a part of who I am, but it's not all of who I am. First and foremost, I am a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. And with that, I happen to also be a husband, a be a father, and to be a pastor. And it's easy for those things to get out of alignment. And and for me, where it gets out of alignment for me at times is the expectations that I put upon myself and who I think I need to be, the expectations that at times God's people put on the calling. Uh, And then there is the Lord's expectations. And friends, if we're not familiar with what God's word says towards our identity, And why he's put us here, if that's blank or it's fuzzy, uh, the enemy, he'll fill in the blank for you. And he'll fill it with a lie. 
He'll, 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 but he'll twist it and tweak it in such a way where it almost resembles truth. Because friends, being a pastor is a great privilege. It is a great joy. I count it so. But again, it's not who I am. I'm a Christian, a follower of Christ before that. And God certainly reminded me in my time away from that because it was a strange foreign thing to not prepare a sermon for several weeks. It was a strange and foreign thing to sit where you sit and to listen. But it was a good thing. It was a necessary thing for my heart that I think will, I know will be helpful. And friends, you can apply that to anything. Being a parent, being a mom, being a dad is a noble and honorable thing. But your identity is not in being a mom or dad. Because if it is, when your parent, when your children act up, man, you will be frazzled. You will be discouraged. Our identity is not found in our job. For our students that are getting ready to go back to school, your identity is not found in that degree or that future job that you hope to get with that degree. Your identity is not found uh, in your new spouse. We have a newly married couple here. It's good to see Mike and Tiffany. Love you guys. Yeah. And as sweet as that relationship is, your identity is not found in one another. Our identity is found in Christ. And, and the reason I say that, because as tonight, Paul has very meaningful words for the church leaders. These are lasting words. These are his final words. I heard it said from Danny Aiken, the president of Southeastern Seminary, he said that last words are meant to be lasting words, meaning they're supposed to have impact. They're supposed to stick with us. And if you remember back at the beginning of Acts, the book of Acts began with some of Jesus' last words to his disciples, that he was leaving them. But he was not leaving them all alone. He was sending the promise of his spirit. His power was coming. Power to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we've seen throughout our study of the book of Acts, how Jesus's last words had a lasting impact on these men, on those women that gathered together before the spirit came. We see that these men, that this women, that a movement began, not of this earth, but of the Holy Spirit. And at one point in the middle of our study, we saw that they were described as men who had turned the world upside down. And as we look at Paul's last words, I begin to think about this myself, that if you and I, if we had insight into what might be our last days or day on earth, who would we run around us? What would you want them to know? And what would you say? In the case of Paul, we get to see a little bit of what's on his mind and what's on his heart and what he says. During my sabbatical, I had the opportunity, 
or I had planned the opportunity to go and visit with a friend of mine who is really my spiritual father, my friend, my mentor. He really knows everything about me. And I was excited about this trip because he was diagnosed about a month ago with stage four pancreatic cancer. And he has three spots and he began treatment. And then a week before I was supposed to go, his wife called me and said, hey, he's doing really bad. And he's sleeping 20 20 hours a day. And it's probably not going to be a good time for you to come. And so he's got some decisions to make about what he wants to do, if he wants to continue treatment, and we're going to be meeting with the doctors. And so we're probably going to need to postpone your visit to another time. And I was understanding of that, but it was certainly bummed. And then a week went by, and they made the decision during that week when they met with the doctor uh, just to stop chemotherapy altogether. And then once the the medicine began to come out of him, I was able to call and talk to him for a while about that experience. And he shared with me these words. I still hope to see him, but these words continually resonate in my mind. He said, Eric, I was in a scary, dark place, spending 20 hours a day sleeping my life away because of this medicine that I was putting into my body. And I, as I sat there and as I prayed or tried to pray, it became crystal clear that this was no way to live my last months here on earth. That I would rather cancer continue to wreak havoc on my body but to have a sound mind and to be able to communicate the hope of Christ that lies within. Right? What, what, and I was just so taken back by that in a good way. So encouraged by his testimony, because here I am knowing what he's done, trying to encourage me. And it always happened. Those going through the trial, they end up encouraging you way more. Because this man, my friend, he has a clear perspective about what really matters. Eternity, making the hope of Christ known. And I I don't think those will be the last words I hear from him, but those will be the words that ring in my ears when he passes from this life. That he would be willing to to forego a treatment that could give him an extended time here on earth, but yet from his perspective to live isolated from everyone and not to be able to communicate clearly or soundly was no way to live. Uh, To to live, just as Paul said, to live is to live as Christ and to die as gain. And that is his perspective. And those words have stuck with me. And I'm grateful for those words and for that opportunity to hear from him. And again, as I said tonight, we will hear from Paul. Paul had some insight, whether it be a Holy Spirit inclination, as he was heading to Rome, that he was never going to see these people at Ephesus again. A people that he had spent three years with, toiling, plotting faithfully, proclaiming the gospel, persevering under great hardship. 
And so he wanted to leave them with some important words, important words for the leadership mostly, but also for the church itself. And if I had to summarize what Paul would say to the elders at Ephesus and to the Ephesian church, I would summarize it this way with this big idea. That Christian, you are called to care for the church. You are called to care for the church. And as we work through this text, I'm going to answer three questions. Why do we care for the church? Two, who is to care for the church? And three, how do we care for the church? And before we get started, I invite you to join with me in reading of God's word, beginning in verse 17. Now, from Miletus, he sent them to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews and how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of their repentance toward God and the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions wait me. But I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among you have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. And therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church, which he's obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which will be able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Verse 33, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak remember the words of the Lord Jesus and how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, 
being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. They accompanied him to the ship. Again, I call your attention to the big idea. Christian, you are called to care for the church. Remember, again, the context is this. Paul is saying farewell to those whom he loves. His lasting words. And so we begin this evening by asking this first question, why do we care for the church? Every one of us here this evening are driven by a why. Every one of us has a why, meaning what motivates us to be here. We all have a why in life. Our why is what gets us up in the morning. And it's important, and we have several whys, but it's important that they be in the right order. We have an ultimate why as Christians, which is to live our lives, to glorify God. And then we have many other whys. We have a why because some of us have to show up to a job. We have a why because we have little people that live in our house. Right? And we have to get up because if we don't get up, they'll get up and you'll never, you'll never know what you find. All of us have a why. All of us are driven by something. For students, it's getting ready to be school. My kids don't even want to hear that. But again, that's going to be their why for the next nine months. Why did I get up early? Because you got to go to school. We all have a why. We're all driven by something. Our why reveals our motive. And in this text, Paul gives us insight into some of his why, some of his actions as to why he's doing what he's doing, why he's choosing to say what he's saying. So what's going on? One, in context, we see why Paul is saying what he's saying is because he's leaving. He prioritizes the care of the church because he's leaving for Rome, never to return and to see his friends again. And with this being the case, what does he do? He calls an elders meeting. He tells them, guys, I'm getting ready to depart. And I want to leave with you some important information that you need to know that's going to be beneficial for you, but also for God's people. Why? Because the leaders, the elders, the pastors are an influence on the church. Now, we know that they are, they are not the only leaders. We know that Jesus Christ himself is the head of the church. And, but the leaders, they, they influence the church. What they do, what they say, how they live has a direct impact on God's people. And so Paul spends time very clearly, very concisely instructing them, encouraging them to their call. Someone needs to lead the people. Paul can't do it from afar. Again, the church is not intended to be built on any one person, individual, or personality. And we see why. Because if if it's built on Paul, he's leaving. What happens to the church? If you've been around long enough and you've been a Christian long enough, we see what happens when churches are built on personality in certain people. When they leave, what happens? Chaos. 
The church is not built on people. The church is not built on strategy. The church is built on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must remember that. But it's to be led by spirit-led people who are qualified according to 1 Timothy 3. These elders that Paul is speaking to are the spiritual leaders. They are the tone setters. The spiritual thermostat, if you will, of the church. And what Paul is calling them to is to remember the influence they have. That he's not going to be here. And they need to take seriously their role in this position. This privileged position as elders. Secondly, not only the context, it's necessary for this to happen because the work, the mission must go on. But Paul, he assembles them here and he, he tells them, he really charges them uh, to remember the role as shepherds, to remember their responsibility to care for God's people. The church. But notice whose church it is when we, when, we, when we look at this. It's not their church. It's not his church. It's God's church. That we remember that. Right? Because when we forget that, it's easy for self to slip in. The, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ It exists to to reach people, to mature people, and to send them out. Again, to make much of God's name. It doesn't exist just to give us something cool to think about for the week. It doesn't exist for for you to to be entertained at. To have all your, your whims and desires met. It exists to faithfully proclaim and display who Christ is. And that our contentment and that our satisfaction and that our joy comes from him and him alone. He tells them, hey, I'm leaving. You're up to that. He calls them to remember their role as shepherd. Because the sheep, they need a shepherd. And then he gives them a very compelling reason that I want to point out to you in verse 28. Verse 28, he, he, again, he talks about their personal lives, and we'll get to that more in a moment. But I want to focus in on God's purchase. The reason we are to care for the church, and it's a very compelling reason. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. Friend, no one has invested, given more, sacrificed more for the church than God. He gave it all. He gave his son, Christ, to bring us into right fellowship, relationship with him. 
You want to know why we as God's people are to care for the church, to care for the individual that's sitting next to you, in front of you, and behind you? It's because Christ modeled for us what it means to, to live a life of sacrifice. He laid down his life so that the church could exist, so that we could be in harmony with God, so that we could know him and have no fear of being condemned or not being wanted or not being loved. The reason we can experience God's love and enjoy his peace is because of Christ. Christ gave it all. And for this very reason, as Alan talked about last week, you remember Alan talked about living your lives as a living sacrifice. He says, crawl up on the altar and be a living sacrifice. That sounds like lunacy. Who would do such a thing? Who wants to live a life of sacrifice? But when you consider the great mercy and grace of God, it is our reasonable, logical response to all that God has done for us. To lay everything down for him. And friends, it is unnatural. It's not the natural disposition of people to care for others. It's our natural disposition, our inclination to look out for numero uno. But for those who have called to this special place, they should know that by now. But even so, he's reminding them to care for the church. We need to be reminded. Here, the, the Ephesian elders, you would think this is very elementary. But they need to be reminded. Why? Because loving people is hard. Right? If you, if you live in a house with other people, you know what I'm saying. I don't even have to fill in the details for you. This is why he reminds them of this elementary but so important truth. You are to care for the church because God demonstrated his care by purchasing the church with his own blood. And aside from that, we know that God's plan to reach the world, to reconcile people to himself is through his church. First Timothy chapter three, verse 15 says that the church is a witness to be a pillar, a truth for a watching world to see how we live, how we function, how we gather, how we scatter makes a difference. It's God's plan to use the church to reach this community, to reach this state, to reach this country, to reach this world. And so we must care about what happens in the church. Who's in the church? We must love those in the church. This is why we should care. This is what Paul's reminding them. Hey, I'm not going to be here. It's up to you guys. You need to follow the example that I laid out before you. Remember who God's people are. They're his people. He loves them. He demonstrated his great love for them by laying his life down for them. 
Secondly, who cares for the church? Again, this is fairly easy for us to follow. I'm glad the first sermon back is fairly easy to follow. The elders, that's the immediate context, the care of the church. Uh, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders. But listen, just because Paul in context here is speaking to the Ephesian elders doesn't mean that everybody else is off the hook. Right? The care of the church, it begins, it starts with the pastor or with the elders in this case, but it doesn't end with us. Why? Because we're just people. Like, I know most of your names, and I know a lot of what's going on in some of your lives, but I don't know everything. Nor, but I'm not expected to. I only know what you tell me. And you only know about me what I tell you. It takes a village, if you will, of sanctified people striving together in the same direction for the same purpose to make a healthy, growing church. Here, the the elders are to lead the way in that. Again, the text that I read at the beginning of the service, Paul is calling Timothy to pay attention to his life, pay attention to your doctrine, what you believe. Paul tells the Ephesian elders here that you need to live a life of example worth imitating, worth emulating. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 adds to this the weight and to the importance of this calling. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility, one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, no. Just like you see Peter here, he's speaking to the elders, he's speaking to himself, but where does it go by the end of the text? He's talking to the whole congregation. Everybody has a role to play in God's church. Everybody has a place, everybody has a responsibility, everybody has something to do. And he tells them that. He says, hey, elders, you lead the way. You set the tone. You set the temperature, but it doesn't stop and end with you. And I'm so glad that it doesn't, right? Everybody in this room that says that they are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit of God in you. And you are needed and that you are necessary in order for this church to continue to carry on with a mission of God that God has for Living Hope Brian. It will not be accomplished by a, a group of five elders. 
It is our job, as we see in places like Ephesians chapter 4, to what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We're to remind you of all the resources that God has to given to you. We are to pray and seek God's face and ask what we can offer by way of classes, by way of strategy to help you grow in your relationship with Christ. And let me just give a plug to everyone that's here in this room and everybody that's listening online. If, if you don't know what you're doing at 3.30 on Sunday afternoons, I have a great place for you to show up. It's called the prayer class. It just started today, and Frank Wingfield is teaching it. And I would encourage you to show up. I mean, can we all say who has room for growth when it comes to personal prayer? Right? If we're honest, everybody in this room is going to raise their hand, and we should. Friends, prayer is vital to the Christian life. Because when we choose not to pray, we're saying, hey, God, I got it. I'm okay. I'm here to tell you, you don't got it. We can't accomplish what God wants us to accomplish as people unless we're humble before him, unless we depend upon him. God resists the prideful spirit, but he gives grace to the humble and he lifts it up. And so I would encourage you this, again, you may have things and responsibilities. I don't want you come because you have a desire. Your why is that you want to be there to learn and to grow into prayer. But consider that. I know it's in the middle of the day and We've made this transition in the last year and it's interrupted naps and all that stuff, man. But it's giving up a nap to learn how to pray. That, that's good. The, the responsibility to care for the church is on the elders, but it's also in the people. And so how do we do it? How do we care for the church? That's what everybody wants to know. How do we care for the church? And I find it interesting what Paul does is Paul, he uses his own life as the example, as the teaching tool for those elders to follow. Paul was a person that was with the people. And because they were able to witness his life, witness the trials that he went through, the hardships, see the tears they were able to uh, identify with him on a deeper level and receive his instruction. And, and the elders that are here, our life is to, to model this. We are to be a, a teaching tool to help others, to spur one another's on to love and to good deeds. And this is what Paul does. Paul's like, you want to know how to be an elder? It sounds kind of like self-serving, but it's not. He's like, look at my life. And, he, and I believe he says this with all humility. Because he, he has lived his life amongst the people. He's lived a life above reproach. Friends, may we remember all of our lives teach something. Say something. 
And Paul, because he was submitted and committed to the Lord, he was able with confidence to say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me the way that I'm living. Hey, guys, you want to know how to lead the church here when I'm gone? You can look to my example. Paul here, I want to quickly just point out a couple different ways that he modeled for these elders that will benefit us all. One, by his labor. Paul modeled how to serve. Again, remember when I was asking about what's your why? Paul, Paul in this text, he, he makes sure and he hones in and he reminds, hey, my why was not to gain. In fact, I, I, I worked a side job. I mean, he was a tent maker. He, he, he provided his, his, his own way. He wasn't there for, for gain. He was there to give. Notice what he says in verse 24. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Again, I hearken back to what Alan said last week in Romans, or what Alan was preaching on last week from Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, that we not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Self-preservation is detrimental to the church. We put ourself and our desires and our wants before God and before others. It will lead to decay. It'll bring sickness into the church. Paul says, hey, I live my life. I don't value my life as precious, but, but I'm willing to give it. If I only may finish the course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus and testify to the gospel of grace of God. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as put here to serve or to be served? Again, we look to Jesus. If there's anybody who should have been served, should have been Christ, right? But even Christ himself, he said, hey, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Paul modeled for these Ephesian elders through his labor. His labor was not for himself, but for his Lord. We also see by his personal life, Paul models for us how to suffer. No one likes to suffer. I was reading this morning uh, in my personal devotion and the Psalms 119 and the author there is thanking God for being afflicted. God, you are good in the affliction that you have given to me. 
Friends, it's a powerful testimony when we continue to serve the Lord and praise the Lord when we face great trial and affliction. Just like I shared with you about my friend Bill, willing to forego treatment and stay here long on the earth so he could be, because he's, he's got several grandkids and that's a new thing for him and he loves them and he's excited for them. And certainly he's been married to his wife for a really long time. And yet, he's willing to give all of that up for the sake of the call. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love his children. It doesn't love his grandchildren. It doesn't love his wife. He just remembers who is responsible for his life and who's given him life and why he's here. He's willing Paul is willing to do the same thing. He was consistent in his courage. Twice in this text, he reminds the Ephesian elders that he did not shrink back from declaring to them what was profitable, teaching them in public from house to house, testifying to both Jew and to Greek about the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 26, he says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back declaring to you the whole counsel of God. What does that mean? I'm innocent of the blood of all. Paul, he is borrowing this language from Ezekiel 33. And Ezekiel 33 describes the duties of the watchman. In ancient days, cities were surrounded by walls for protection, and that watchman played a very vital role in the vitality and the prosperity of the city. They were given the function and job to be on the lookout for any would-be invaders, enemies, armies, marauders, or any other dangers. And it was important for them, when they saw danger coming, to give warning. Uh, to, to blow a horn and let people know danger is afoot. And if the watchman was negligent in this job, they could be put to death. This is how serious and how important this role was. We know in the New Testament, in Hebrews 13, that the overseers, the pastors, they are called Watchmen over the souls of others in the church. And it's important for the pastor to convey clearly the truth of God's word. And this is what Paul was saying. Hey, I'm innocent of anything that happens to you because I have not held back the truth of his word. I have told you what will happen if you reject Christ. I've told you what will happen if you don't do things God's way. I have told you the importance of walking in the spirit of submitting to him. I have told you of the importance of being spiritually prepared. Just go back and read through the book of Ephesians and everything that Paul says there. I've taught you how we are saved, all of these things. I've held nothing back from you. 
I didn't shrink back even when it was difficult, even when it was hard. Friends, that is a faithful pastor, a faithful leader, somebody who is willing to tell you not what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. That is a faithful friend. And this is what Paul has been, a faithful friend, a faithful pastor, a faithful follower of God, warning them of what's to come. And that's our responsibility today, friend. Not just the pastor, but everybody in this room who calls himself Christian. God has made us a steward of his rich word, and we are to take it, and we are to share it with those that we come in contact with. Whether they listen or not, that's not up to us. We're to do so spirit-filled, with gentleness, with concern, with care, and compassion. Lastly, we see not only by his labor in his life, but also with his love. We see the fruit of Paul being faithful, of laboring with them, of not thinking of himself, of loving others, of spilling his life out for others, for not holding back. What happens when it's Paul's time to go? They, they pray together and then they weep together. And then Paul prepares to go on his way. And those tears, again, that is evidence, that is fruit of a life lived together. A people who had gone through things together. Paul, he was a man truly of the people. He was with the people. He was a shepherd. And shepherds, we should smell like sheep. Paul knew the people and they knew him. Again, this are good words to hear as someone privileged to serve in this capacity. To, to remember God's expectation for the pastor. Again, the pastor, he's not a hero or a superhero. He's not a CEO of some nonprofit organization. The church is a living, breathing organism. It's a family and he's a part of it. We're all connected to the Father. We've all been given certain roles, and the Lord wants us to strive together in them. For the sake of his name. And may we continue to do that. And so as we leave here this evening, I want to keep these things in mind. One is this. One, rejoice in God's great purchase. This is our why. This is what moves us because of what Christ has done for us. Two, remember God's plan for the church. Everyone in this church who calls themselves Christian has a role. Everyone has a responsibility in God's glory. God's name is the point. And three, I would tell you this, to pray for your spiritual leaders. The work that God has called us to do is a hard work. 
Friends, it's an impossible work on our own. I tell you this just so you can know how to pray. Because we need it. I need it. That time of rest was so needed. I didn't realize how tired I was until I didn't have to do. So, so, so pray for your leaders. Pray for a, a growing relationship with God. Pray for a commitment to truth. Pray for steadfast obedience under trial and temptation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this charge that you have given to leaders, but also to all who belong to the family of faith. God, help us to remember once again how precious it is to gather together with your people. Help us again to remember the great lengths that you've gone through for the church to be in existence. Lord, I pray our hearts would be encouraged, that they would be stirred. Lord, if somebody here without Christ, Lord, would you show them, would you convince them by your Holy Spirit's power of their need of Christ, so that they would turn to you. They would seek your help. God, we love you. We praise your name in Christ's name. Amen.